1: Mm. So like I knew I got to go to the thing and fill myself out. Mm -hmm. But they're not like, here you go. It's very much like, well, if you really want it. Welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Ecclesias, here with ProPublica's Darren Lind, Vox.com's Dylan Scott. Uh, we've got Dylan with us to help us understand um, one aspect of the Biden jobs and infrastructure proposal, the kind of um, least infrastructure in the traditional sense aspect, which is this $400 billion uh, investment in care work and and the care economy, uh, which I guess it's like a big phrase, but then when you like drill into it, it's like a specific Medicaid program. Really, is that is that right? Am I understanding that correctly?
2: Yes, I mean, I think you know, all we have right now is you know basically a white sheet from the Biden administration. So I think there's from talking to some experts over the last week, there are definitely some details to be filled in later. Uh, but this is primarily a a big investment in long term care and specifically. Uh, home and community-based services, so people you know who want to be able to age uh, in their homes rather than going to an institution like a nursing home, and you know pr- the 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 main outlay for those kinds of services is you know home health aides, whether that's somebody who just like. Stops by, you know, a couple times a week to help you with your laundry or with cleaning up around the house or whatever. All the way up to like, you know, a home health aide who might be staying with you for the entire day and, and taking care of basically all of your needs. So that is kind of what the care economy is. But really, you know, this is, uh, you know, and when you talk to experts about this, they they think of it from the perspective of patients because you know people like to age at home, and in order to do that, we need to you know provide. Healthcare workers and compensate those healthcare workers, uh, so that people are able to do that. And I think there are two important pieces of context for why this provision is in the in the jobs plan. You know, regardless of its relevance to infrastructure, one of those is like there is kind of a long-standing structural problem here. So you know, people do you know broadly speaking, people like to spend their later years at home if possible. And before COVID and all that stuff, there was already a waiting list of about almost a million people. I think it was between like 800 and 900,000 people who wanted to be enrolled in their Medicaid programs, uh, home and community based services benefits, which would provide them with like some home health aides who would come and help them out with some of those daily tasks. And so that is like, you know, that's that's a big number. Uh, It's not a perfect one to one, like not every person who's living in a nursing home is on a waiting list to be, you know, because they would rather be staying at home. But for some context, like, currently, there are 1.2 million nursing home residents in the United States. And so nearly as many people who are as are currently living in a nursing home are on a waiting list to get these home based services. So that was a pretty big unmet need that existed uh, before the COVID-19 pandemic. And then during COVID, as you know, I'm sure most listeners know, uh, nursing homes have just been ravaged by the virus. And especially like the big institutions have had a really difficult time controlling the virus. You know, they've got big staffs, people who are coming in and out all the time. And that's taken a really heavy toll on residents. We've got like, I was looking at the numbers this morning, we've had about uh, 130,000 nursing home residents deaths. And there's some evidence that people who stay at home or who in maybe like smaller settings, like small group homes of elderly people, have seen much fewer COVID cases and COVID deaths. And so I think when you combine those things, the kind of pre-existing unmet need uh, prior to COVID and then the toll that COVID took on nursing homes, I think that probably helps to explain why Uh, Biden is placing such an emphasis on this, even though it seems a little bit of a stretch uh, to include this in an infrastructure and, and jobs plan.
0: So in terms just in thinking about this kind of outside the context of, you know, infrastructure or this proposal, kind of looking at the problem. It seems to me that there are a couple of ways, like, I'm really glad you brought group homes up, right? Because it's not in practice a choice between someone aging in place and getting put into this like massively institutionalized, faceless nursing home bureaucracy. In theory, there are other options. People can move in with younger relatives. Small group homes are an option. And like, I know from my mother who works in elder housing, that it's, you know, it, it even though people's preference is always to age in home that that kind of has knock on effects not just in terms of health care but also in terms of the housing stock etc that aren't always you know, collectively ideal. So to what extent is the effort to meet the demand for aging in place by supporting healthcare that is home-based? Do the experts you talk to believe that this is actually is the right answer, normatively speaking, or is this just accepting that for better or worse, everybody wants to age in the home that they currently have? And because of that, the best thing we can do, even though it's not what we would ideally want, and even though it's going to cost us more money than it otherwise would, is to provide the services to them where they want to be?
2: I think there are a couple ways to think about this, but you, you're definitely like raising the right question. So I think one, you know, in talking to experts, and certainly if you talk to, you know, people who advocate for seniors and people with disabilities who are the other important population to keep in mind here, they place a lot of emphasis on personal agency. You know, it is kind of on the front end that like, People should have control over the kind of care that they receive, especially when they're in these vulnerable situations, whether they're growing older or whether they have a disability. And so I do think that's kind of like a first principle from which a lot of this flows and I think they would certainly point to, you know, it's a, it, it can be a hard thing to quantify, but they would certainly point to like surveys and other kinds of quality of life measurements that that certainly indicate that people who, who are able to age at home, you know, are happier and have a higher quality of life. I do think an important thing to, to note at the top is that there's always going to be a role for institutions, uh, whether that's people, it could, and all of this is on an individual basis, but you know, there are going to be people, you know, if you're single, if you're older and you're single, maybe you don't want to live by yourself. Maybe you would rather be in a, in a, whether that's in a group home setting or in just like a nursing home or an assisted living facility, you'd want to be around other people. And you might just see a lot of value in being in a bigger institution just for your own social needs. And then certainly, you know, with people who have Uh, significant health needs or, you know, severe cognitive impairment, living at home is just, you know, it's going to place a lot of burden on other members of their family, or it's just not going to be practical. And so there's going to be a role uh, for institutions no matter what. I think the the way that David Grabowski, who's a, a prominent Harvard professor who has studied long-term care for a long time put it to me is we're kind of trying to rebalance between home care and institutional care because you know as I started thinking about this it occurred to me that like for most of human history uh, if you were lucky enough to age of course you aged at home like nursing homes and these kinds of institutions are a relatively recent phenomenon something that cropped up in the 1950s for a variety of reasons because we had we had more older people. Uh, we had, you know, people became a little less uh, physically kind of stuck, like people started migrating and moving around, you know, family members were the people who were offering providing that care. But like, if your kid moves across the country, uh, because they got a job, or that's where they want to raise their family, you know, then suddenly there's nobody around who can provide that kind of informal care. And so that that was kind of the need that nursing homes filled. And then with the event, you know, when Medicaid came online in the 1960s, it had a nursing home benefit. And so, like, we now had a way to pay for that care. And so, like, there was a pretty rapid, you know, relatively speaking over a number of decades, a pretty rapid institutionalization of of long-term care. But that kind of defied what most people actually want, which is largely to, to age at home. And so now we've been trying to figure out the balance between, like, if people want to be able to age at home, we want to provide them the support that they can do that. Obviously, as I was saying, there's still going to be a role for institutional care. And so this does seem to be primarily a matter of resources. Like, you know, the nursing homes will tell you already that like Medicaid underfunds uh, the care that they need to provide for nursing home residents. And so, and then like, as those waiting lists that I was describing earlier, uh, I think are evidence of, you know, there's a big unmet need for people who want to stay at home as well. And so the folks that I talked to, I, I, I asked several of them, I was like, so like is 400 billion, like, is is this the right number? Like it's a big number, like Matt was saying <laughs> at the top. Um, but is it the right number? And everybody just kind of shrugged. Like, no, I don't think anybody knows what the right number is and and so I think that that they see it as like this is a worthwhile investment. Um, there's clearly a pretty big unmet need. There is some uh, indications that like people in either small group settings or in who just live at home are are happier. You know, in in the in the case of the of covid, they have fared better in terms of health Outcomes, um, but I think we're still trying to like figure out what that balance is. You know, it's been a pendulum swinging back and forth for the last 60, 70 years, and so I, I do think that this four hundred billion would help to move the pendulum back towards some kind of equilibrium. But there, there are some trade offs, and 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 I think that we still just you know it would be a start, but certainly not not the end of of figuring out how to balance you know institutional needs versus versus home needs.
1: So I think something to to clarify as we as we start to talk about these these nuances is just like how undetailed the White House proposal on this is, right? <laughs> so, you know, there's there's this whole big jobs plan package, and then it kind of splits into four thematic clusters of which like caretaking economy is one. And then there's this great Washington Post graphic, and it divides these squares up into smaller rectangles, but like there is no smaller rectangle in the caring economy one. It just says home and community-based care for elderly and disabled people. By contrast, like the transportation one is 621 billion. And they split it up into one, two, three, four, five, six, seven chunks, plus a catch-all eight other category. And then like one of those sub-chunks is highways, bridges, and roads. And I could tell you as somebody who has like reported on transportation policy that like the highways, bridges, and roads sub-element contains a fix-it-first mandate that's supposed to uh, (laughs) da-da-da-da-da. And, you know, like, there's a... Whether you agree or disagree with, like, the exact numbers attached to all of those things, they reflect... Fairly specific policy community theories of what it is we should do about these things. So, like in the infrastructure at home, there's an affordable housing sub element. And then a sub sub element of that is a competitive grant program for zoning reform. Mm. Uh, so, like, I can tell you all about that. Uh, the care economy, it's like we're going to spend more money on the Medicaid program for home health care. And then you like try to ask, like, What's the balance between community-based care and home-based care? Like, there's no answer. And it's like 400 billion meaning like what? Like how? Like, how does that work in the formula? And they say, I mean, they have like a good answer to this, which is that like, you know, these are really congressional decisions, blah, 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 which is totally true. But like, it's it's also also true of
0: all the things that they have attached sub buckets and numbers to.
1: Why is it one hundred and seventy four billion for electric vehicles rather than one hundred seventy five? Whereas here, like they pretty obviously just took a large round number and were like trying to say that they endorse the concept of spending a large round number and it's on this particular thing. I mean, in part because of COVID and the problems that's illustrated with institutional care, but also, I mean, I think worth saying very specifically because of Service Employees International Union, mm. which represents a lot of home health care workers. A clear, like, pro-union agenda is like woven through the whole jobs plan, up right. to and including, like, somewhere in the fact sheet, they're like, "Oh, also the PRO Act <laughs> is part of this," which, <laughs> right. which, like. It isn't because that's not in budget reconciliation, but like this whole thing is like a, you know, it's like Joe Biden's like labor union friendly jobs plan for America because caretaking economy is like such a big, interesting subject Mm -hmm. that could like include, you know, preschool and like summer camp for 12 year olds and nursing homes and like 80 million things. But like this is one slice of the caretaking economy. And it's specifically the slice that like one particular politically savvy and influential union represents a lot of the members on. And then one of the aspirations in the plan is that you will raise the pay um, of the people doing this work, because it's very, um, I don't know how to say it. It's like, it's very inefficient to have like one person in one person's home. Helping them out with stuff. So it's both incredibly expensive from a like cost per patient perspective, but also like really, really low paid work. And you're Mm -hmm. just constantly squeezed between like making this job be not terrible and making the costs not totally crushing. And so the idea of 400 billion is like it's going to be more and also better. And the balance between those two is not like adjudicated at all in the plan. Um, but there's like a complete trade-off between how much of the $400 billion do you want to spend on increasing compensation and how much of it do you want to spend on increasing the number of people who get access to these programs? Because like that's the whole cost of home health aid provision. There isn't like There isn't like some secret other thing that the money goes to. It's just expensive to send somebody to be in your house for hours a day.
2: Right. So you're saying that like because you're if you're increasing the compensation for the home health aids, you are, you because we have kind of a firm number here, four hundred billion dollars, you're only you, there's only so many home health aids that you can hire. And like that number is gonna shrink the more that you pay them.
1: Wait, is it like you could look at Apple and you could be like, Tim Cook could pay those Apple store guys more money. And then Apple would just be less profitable because they have like staggering profits, right? But like the Medicaid Home Health Aid Program doesn't work like that. It's not there's not like some other place for that money to come from, other than you don't hire as many. I mean, obviously, with four hundred billion, you could hire more people and you could pay them better, but like yeah. you still have to pick a point on that trade-off curve.
2: Yeah. No, I think that's fair. But I, I, I and I think that's fair. I, I would say that, like, you know, when you talk to people, this this maybe is a little dissatisfying, but you know, I, I asked folks like you know, are there, is there like programmatic stuff that we need to be doing or is this a matter of of resources and you know, at least the folks that I talked to certainly came down on the side that like, we, we just need to spend, we do need to spend a lot more money. And it, it is pretty well established. There was actually a, uh, a new study out about this. Uh, it, w- it was focused on institutional care, nursing homes, but the staff turnover in those settings is pretty, it's astronomical. Like the big finding from that study was that the average nursing home basically sees 100% turnover, on a year to year basis. And while that's more complicated than just compensation, because obviously this is very, this is very difficult work. Uh, Some of the uh, populations that often do this kind of work may not be sticky necessarily, like maybe they're just moving or finding, you know, going back home or whatever. And so, yeah, clearly they've kind of dodged that question, that trade off that you raise. But I do think that like, and maybe this is this is partly the SCIU influence and partly, you know, that this is a, to some extent uh, the consensus of, of policy net experts that like if there is wherever a problem where like throwing money at the problem is a somewhat palatable solution, uh, then maybe this is it. And I do think that it's worth keeping in mind that like. There is a pretty wide spectrum. Like it is there are certainly going to be cases where it is you're literally paying one home health worker to go care for one patient, you know, eight hours a day, and that is their job. Um but you know, there are there are also people who qualify for these home and community-based services who have less needs. And so like, you know, if you can retain staff And for those people who have less needs, you know, one worker is going to be able to provide care to more people that maybe that, they, that that helps to mitigate the 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 issue that you're raising to some extent. And, you know, institutional care is very expensive. You know, Grabowski, this uh, Harvard professor, emphasized this point that, like, if we can provide some of the more of the cheaper care uh, to some of these people who maybe just have some needs in order to be able to stay at home, as opposed to moving them, you know, if we continue to underfund these programs, we might have somebody who has relatively light service needs, but certainly needs those services to be in order to be able to stay at home. You know, if we can provide them those services, then that is arguably a a cost savings if the alternative is if they can't get those services and their only option is moving into an institutional setting. So I think there are a lot of like weird trade-offs that clearly the Biden administration is not interested in getting into with this white (laughs) sheet. Um, But it's just it's a it's a complicated picture because this is such a, a complex population, I think, which is, I think, why it's been such a hard problem to solve. This
0: does have me wondering a little bit if and it's wild to say this with, you know, this incredibly large price tag defining infrastructure in this very Broadway package. But looking at this particular provision and kind of the gap between the idea of including the care economy in an infrastructure package and the specific proposal that's being made. Maybe it is just, you know, Dylan, as you were saying, that like this is the easiest part of the problem to throw money at. But is there any sense that there's either that there's a missed opportunity either in defining the either either in addressing other elements of the care economy or defining the care economy itself more broadly, or even in if you're defining the care economy as like health aids serving individual people in like residential settings, that there could be more to be done with, I don't know, Renovating the physical footprint of, you know, of of institutional settings, of exploring, like creating incentives for group housing and that kind of thing, that that there's stuff that's being left on the table in terms of as long as you're going to put out this super broad infrastructure plan, here are some more revolutionary proposals you could be putting out there that would have a much bigger impact if they somehow got passed into law.
2: Absolutely. Yes. I, I think anyway, there are certainly missed opportunities here. Um, I mean, one thing is like, obviously, the care economy is just kind of a made up term that sounds good. Um, but like, I don't think it has any kind of, you know, f- official or academic definition. And so like, you know, our my colleague Anna North uh, wrote something last week about, you know, child care, which is argu- could arguably certainly be incorporated as part of the care economy, is not included in this proposal. Um, but I do think more importantly, there—or just not more importantly—but even just sticking with long-term care, there are some, at least two pretty obvious missed opportunities. One is there, there's a bigger structural problem with long-term care in the United States that this plan does nothing to address, which is that like Medicaid, a means-tested program that for which only you know people with low incomes or, or few assets qualify for, is the primary payer. Of long term care. And so the, the system that we have for long term care is basically either you might be either middle class or wealthy enough to afford your own long term care for a while, but eventually you spend down your money and your assets until you qualify for Medicaid. And yes, at that point, Medicaid is covering your care, but you have spent down your income and your assets in order to be able to get those benefits. And this You know, this does not do anything to address that. That is admittedly a very thorny problem to try to solve. As I know Matt remembers, uh, the ACA, the Affordable Care Act, tried to introduce a program called the Class Act um, that that would have set up a new long-term insurance program, and it was scrapped before it was ever implemented because it was going to be so expensive. And so that that structural problem is pretty much untouched by the Biden plan. Like, people are still going to have to spend uh, or, you know, basically eliminate their assets in order to be able to quali- qualify for these Medicaid benefits. Um, and I was interested, this is a bit of a side note, I guess, but I was reading uh, a paper in Nature about all this yesterday. And, you know, we spend so much time talking about how, you know, how much the U.S. spends on healthcare as a percentage of GDP relative to other countries but on long-term care, we actually dramatically underspend compared to at least like kind of the best performing countries. So like the Netherlands is kind of held up as a model of of long-term care in part because they they opt more for the small kind of group home settings. And they spend something like 3% of GDP on, on long-term care. The U.S. spends like 0.5%. So like, and this is a problem across a lot of countries, Australia, which is, a which it's Overall healthcare system is is quite a bit better than the U.S., but they also spend you know a pretty meager amount on long term care. So I don't want to make this sound like just a, a problem that's unique to America. But there's a pretty good case to be made that we are dramatically underfunding long term care in the U.S., and we've done nothing to kind of fix this problem of what we of what we require people to spend on their own before they they fix or before they qualify for public benefits. And the other piece of this is. You know, there's nothing in here, though, maybe, you know, in theory, some more detailed uh, legislative language could start to address this. There's not a lot in here necessarily that would help to uh, bolster like what are called like non-traditional nursing homes, which I think are more of these kind of small group homes that we've been talking about. There's a a group out there called Greenhouse. It's kind of like a loose collective of non-traditional nursing homes. And, you know, they look much more like You know, it's more like a residential house where maybe like 10 to 12 people live. Um, They've got like their own private bedrooms and then like kind of some shared living spaces. They've got like at least, you know, a a small nursing staff that's just dedicated to them. Uh, And they have like doctors and and more specialists come in and visit as needed. And to return to the COVID issue, like there's there have been some studies that were run in the uh, by the University of North Carolina uh, that found that that residents living in those small group settings were i think it was a f- one fifth as likely to contract covid nineteen in the first place and twenty times less likely to die from covid nineteen than somebody who was living in a larger institution and so like you could see that and think like, "Oh my God, why are we not investing in this small group home model?" And because right now, like I said before, we have like 1.2 million nursing homes and Greenhouse has, I, I don't have it pulled up in front of me, but they basically have a couple thousand residents. So it's like just a meager, meager, meager uh, percentage of the overall long-term care population. So I don't necessarily see a ton in here that is like providing, and, and those those providers will say like we just haven't made the kind of regulatory changes or like programmatic changes or financial investments to to really expand this model and you know i think in theory you could imagine how you know congress could take what's in this this white sheet and try try to uh, provide more incentives for for those small group settings but you know that's that's kind of just a big to be determined with this plan, which, again, I think just speaks to the lack of interest in in details and what we've seen from the Biden White House so far. Let's, let's take a break. And I,
1: I want to talk about some big um, theoretical issues here.
2: Support for The
3: Weeds comes from not another politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu/slash NAP. That's N-A-P-P. Support for the Weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, then spend hours trying to get those pieces together, or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier. b u r r o w. dot com slash weeds for fifteen percent off. burrow. dot com slash weeds.
1: So I think you know something that's striking about this, right? Like people can sort of disagree, like like what is really infrastructure, you know, blah blah blah. I think a lot of the, the discourse around this has that kind of quality, um, but you can sort of assess certain things to be a kind of, you know, like metaphorical infrastructure or extended Mm -hmm. infrastructure in the sense that they have the characteristic that the upfront investment has a long-term payoff, right? Mm. So like people might disagree as to like whether preschool has that characteristic, but the enthusiasts about preschool believe that it does right like that's their case for it is that like every dollar we invest in educating the youngest children will be returned to us i mean not in a literal financial return but that like the kids will do will do better in life it'll have these big long-term benefits for the economy part of what's so tricky about this elder care situation is that it doesn't have that characteristic right the reason why um we, we, we did on the show, and I know you wrote about it for the site, Dylan, that study about private equity ownership of nursing homes, right? Mm-hmm. And it's like taking over the nursing home and making it better does not generate a financial return to the investor. Like that's, that's why it has that sad outcome, right? And the public sector perspective is different, but not all that different, right? Like if you do a better job of taking care of elderly and disabled people, they benefit, but like Mm. they don't, they don't stop being elderly and like stop needing help, right? And again, it's different from certain aspects of healthcare, right? It's like if somebody gets sick and you have like a good medicine for them, then they get better. If you fix their broken bone, they get better. But people who are, you know, in their 80s and need, Nursing care, like they don't recover, like even if the facility is really, really good. So there's no like end point at which the investment sort of like stops, or you say we've crossed a, a cost benefit line. One of the big things about home based care, right, is like people, people just like they like it more. Yeah, People would rather have somebody help them so they can continue staying at home than be told, no, you're on this waiting list. You have to go uh, to the nursing home because that's what Medicaid will, will pay for. And to what Dara was saying, right? It's like- if you're managing resources from like a state government perspective, right? Well, what you want to say is, okay, how can we find something that is like more cost effective than giving every single person exactly what they want, but like still a higher quality experience than everybody is in this like Medicaid financed institutional setting where private equity barons may take it over and like try to kill everyone to, to make a quick buck. And it's such a difficult issue because it's a realm of, of fairly sharp trade-offs, right? Like even if the small group setting is really good, like you just, you're not going to tell somebody like, Oh no, like you're going to leave your house and you're going to live in this other place and you're going to meet strangers and that's going to be way better. Right? Ooh, like, right. Like, I
0: mean, just like on, you know, on a, on a basic level, there is no government power to say you have to leave your home or we're you know, we going to stop you from paying, you know, as like from from h- however you can finance this paying for somebody to come to your home. It's just like, because that underlying coercion isn't there, all of the incentive structures in the world aren't necessarily going to solve the underlying preference for I want to stay where <laughs> I live, damn it.
1: Well, and there's incredible path dependence, right? If we had started out, If Medicaid had never had a nursing home provision and it instead had a sort of entitlement structure for home-based care, Mm -hmm. then we would have started with that, seen the costs explode, and now we'd be dealing with, like, the Medicaid budget crisis, right? And what can we do to restructure the program to, like, urge people into institutions? Or if we'd done the opposite, if we had never started the home-based care, like, there wouldn't be a waiting list, Because it's just not covered by Medicaid. And we might be having a policy discussion about how do you improve the nursing home program? Or should we create these innovative community-based solutions that might deliver more customer satisfaction, right? But we got into this kind of weird halfway option where this like – Patient-friendly, high cost option is available, but mm-hmm. not on an entitlement basis because it's too expensive. So now, you know, like, yeah, just like do more of that. You know, like it seems it, it sounds nice, right? Like it's um the Section 8 housing program is is similar, yeah. where like it's great if you get it, but about 75% of eligible people can't get it. Um, so you could just spend more money on it. But it's um in some ways, appealingly crude to just be like, here's this thing people like, but they often can't get it because it's too expensive. So we're going to give mm-hmm. them more of it. But like on another level, it doesn't it doesn't like, quote unquote, solve anything in terms of like the the big dilemmas that afflict this sector. Right. The premise is just that, you know, you're going to raise taxes and it's going to be worth it because. Right. Like, we're helping sympathetic people.
2: And I do think, yeah, this is a place where sort of like uh, ruthless cost efficiency, yeah, runs into the, the the humanitarian angle. I guess I do think to your, one something that's interesting to your point is that because I was talking to people, and at one somebody had sent me a paper. That that just had a line that stuck out to me, which was sort of like, we don't actually know in terms of outcomes how much better home and community based care is than than a, an institutional setting. It you know we we have some measurements of how much more patients might like it, but obviously you know we can't can't depend entirely on like quality of life satisfactions to to eva- uh, to evaluate a policy, and there actually are some indications that people who who stay at home are more likely to end up in the hospital with something as opposed to somebody who uh, is living in a nursing home, which I think makes some intuitive sense, right? Like the person in the nursing home is kind of constantly being monitored by medical professionals. Whereas, you know, if you're that person who doesn't have a home health aid every day maybe somebody who comes by a couple times a week it's a lot easier for some you know emergency to slip through the cracks and you end up in the hospital and that ends up becoming more expensive to you know all of us because obviously a lot of those people qualify for Medicare and Medicaid and so that's that's coming out of public programs I did think it was interesting this this I don't mean to keep returning to the greenhouse model but there was a recent paper in health affairs that showed that that population actually, is less likely to end up in the hospital than folks who are in a, a, a nursing home, a more a larger institutional setting. And so, I think maybe that gets back to to what I was talking about before of this like this kind of balancing. Like it is always going to be kind of a very, it's going to be a complex population with a lot of complex needs. And while it is true that broadly speaking people do like to age at home, it's not true for everybody. And so, yeah, it seems like people were trying to figure out a way to allow people to have the kind of care they want and to feel as if they have some control over their care while also being, you know, responsible certainly with with public resources. And so it, it seems like at this point like I don't think anybody really knows kind of what what that balance would would actually look like. And so instead we kind of keep Experimenting and putting, you know, putting our our feet on different levers to try to figure out what would work best. But you know, it's I don't think I don't know that I don't know what the kind of like uh, perfect solution to any of this would be, given those complexities, which is really unsatisfying. But and 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 you're never going to address the the point that you raised that like this is simply, you know, a population. That yeah, like what whatever resources we put into it sure maybe you get some marginal savings if people end up in the hospital less or whatever but you're not talking about yeah like a pre k program where you're like preparing people for a life of of higher earnings and therefore you know paying more taxes and kind of you know just building up the the public welfare but you know isn't i guess it's also like this is part of living in a society i guess like we've had these <laughs> these amazing medical breakthroughs that that allow people to live as long as they do now But we also have to figure out a way to let those people live a life. You know, it's it doesn't mean much to live longer if your quality of life is terrible, you know. And so, like, I think that's that's kind of what we're what we're struggling with. And clearly, uh, we haven't really come out with with quite the right answer yet.
0: Is there any possibility you think that like there could be that the the vagueness of this part of the biden proposal could be an opportunity to you know like it does it seems like on the one hand the existing proposal uh, at least as we can you know figure it out from the way that it's been presented is you know a very easy, like, it's very easy to design policy lever. And then if you look at the broader picture, we run very quickly into what does it mean to live in a society? And <laughs> how much do you value a life? And a lot of things that, like, the uh, congressional bill writing process is unlikely to resolve these questions <laughs> in a satisfactory manner.
2: Mm, you have such little faith in Congress.
0: I I, I do. I apologize to Congress. Uh, but do you think that there is any opportunity to use the You know, we'll let Congress figure it out uh, angle that the administration is taking to maybe figure out a version of a care economy infrastructure proposal that gets it kind of intermediate solutions that expand the possibility horizon a little bit more and open up these sort of questions without steering us directly into, you know, death panels.
2: I think so. I mean, Trisha Newman at the Kaiser Family Foundation, who studies long-term care, uh, told me, you know, this is the beginning of the process. They're basically, all, all the Biden administration has really said is like, There is an amount of money that we are willing to invest in this broad issue. Um, But the specific policy could go a lot of different directions. I mean, we do have existing programs in Medicaid. The money follows the person program, which is just, you know, basically fairly, you know, compensating people for home-based care at the same level. They would be compensated for institutional care. You know, you could just expand that. But, you know, if you wanted to get crazy, she threw out the idea of like, Maybe we could finally add some kind of long-term care uh, benefit in Medicare, which arguably would make a lot more sense. You know, we've we've siloed long-term care into the Medicaid program, which you know, as I said, is, is mean-tested. And requires people to, uh, you know, have relatively few assets and income in order to qualify for it. Maybe we should be thinking about restructuring long term care so that it's provided through Medicare and it's uh, more universal. Obviously, that would potentially be very expensive. Um, So I do I do think that the policy, you know, kind of the policy world uh, has bigger ideas about like what what could potentially kind of fit in this 400 billion dollar investment and maybe some ways that we could go beyond just propping up a system that has a lot of a lot of problems, structural problems that are not going to be addressed by what uh, the White House has laid out so far. To your point, I I, I share your pessimism uh, that both like, you know, anything that would be particularly ambitious would be would be even potentially more expensive than what uh, the Biden White House is laying out. And it's always it's always easier to just pump some money into some programs that exist. You know, we're going to keep you know, we're going to encourage states to 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 try to shorten those uh, home and community based care waiver sh- wait lists and and like, you know wipe our hands we did something on long-term care and isn't that great for us i i i always think that that's the more likely outcome than something uh that's more of a structural reform
1: what what i think is an interesting you know pitfall here right is um before we started recording richard Neal, who chairs the house ways and means committee and this is critical to Anything happening in Congress ever, but especially this proposal, he wrote a letter um, calling for child care to be included in mm. an infrastructure and jobs package. And it's a pitfall of expanding the con- expanding the concept of infrastructure outside of hard construction projects is that you know from a republican perspective it's like ho 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 that's not really infrastructure mm-hmm. um i think from a democratic perspective it's more like well if this thing is infrastructure like so is this other thing that i happen to care about more Right. I mean, if we if we
0: define infrastructure more broadly than what you were laying out, Matt, which I think is like a decent intermediary working definition and the like investment upfront results in savings down the road. Like if by including the care economy, you've moved past that and just treated infrastructure as investment. That's just another word for government funding. (laughs) So like there really there isn't necessarily a limiting principle there.
1: But also it's like, you know, a a media universe that is, you know, people like like me and and Dylan, you know, like parents of little kids are like in the right uh, bracket to like do a lot of takes and talk about how good and correct Chairman Neal is about this. Um, mm. And, you know, like, my kid is, like, just aging out of, like, my zone of concern with this particular issue. Uh, but I continue to know lots of parents of small children. It's, like, obviously it's a huge problem for people, right? And thinking about the kind of, like, like Joe Biden's like new political coalition and like suburban women and all that stuff. Like I it, it just it, it feels to me like I, I can see the child care's infrastructure bandwagon gaining a lot of enthusiasm to the mm-hmm. point where it semi derails this other thing. And I think they may end up wishing that they had just like never popped the top. On the care economy, because it, it just like it's a very expansive concept, right? Yeah. And if your answer to like why childcare isn't in the package is like by infrastructure we mean construction projects, then right. like <laughs> you might agree <laughs> yeah. with that or disagree with that, but like it's a clear limiting principle, right? So right. like there is money for school construction. In the like construction part of it. And like, you could argue that some of that should go to childcare centers, or some of it should go to, you know, long term care facilities, You, you could do whatever. But it's like, once you expand beyond construction projects, it's like, I like America does not have the welfare state of France. And, you know, and like it's not even close. So like anything like could go in that bucket. Right. And it's like that's a that's a hard way to get a law through Congress is by telling people that like you're not addressing their priority, but like you can't give them a clear answer as to why you aren't. You just sort of decided not to.
0: Right. I mean, the, the like first line of response from the White House to the initial wave of you've defined infrastructure too broadly attacks focuses on broadband, which I think is very right. interesting because <laughs> broadband is both something that has become the access to it has become much more important in a lot of people's lives. And the disparities that result from unequal access to broadband have become very salient over the last year, but also Broadband is something that you can use construction materials to like build, right? It is yeah. in a certain way built infrastructure, even if it isn't a road or a bridge. And it's so it's very interesting to me that in a proposal that defines infrastructure much more broadly than just broadband, that the White House is saying, "No, this this is definitely infrastructure right here. This thing that you dig in the ground."
2: Yeah. No, and it seems telling to your point, Matt, that like Richard, I hadn't seen Richard Neal had said that, but I know that uh, Anna North had talked to Katie Porter about the child care, the absence of child care and the jobs plan. And that's a pretty broad spectrum inside the House Democratic caucus from like, right. you know, this progressive in Orange County and, you know, somebody I think who's seen as pretty uh, moderate in Massachusetts. And so, like, if that, if already, you know, those, those squeaky wheels are, are turning that that I it absolutely seems plausible that this could either I don't know if it's a derail, you know, I don't know if it's childcare ends up getting subsumed into the plan or, you know, I'm sure the for the long term care folks, the fear would be that like, all right, well, fine, like, we'll actually pare this down to like, yeah, building things. Um, and that means you're putting all the eggs in whatever, you know, the next reconciliation package might be for for some of this care stuff.
1: Well, and it's tough, right? Because like the White House's official position is that there's going to be this third bill. Right. right? And yeah. the child care is in the third. bill, right? in effect, what happened is that long term care got promoted from yes. the third bill to the second bill. Right. And it's challenging to find a, like, super principled reason for that, Mm -hmm. which on one level, like, doesn't matter. But I think that, like, in terms of congressional politics, like, it actually matters a lot, right? And so, like, one reason Democrats are happy to talk about broadband, right, is, like, we just know that Joe Manchin is very enthusiastic about broadband. Like, he thinks that that's a good thing to talk about. I have no idea what he thinks about either childcare or long-term Care, but a lot of this is ultimately going to hinge on that because we know from Rep Porter, we know from Rep Neal, we know from Anna North. We, d- th- there are just many human beings for whom child care is a higher priority issue than mm-hmm. long term care for the elderly. I mean, and there's others who are vice versa, right? And ultimately it comes down to like which members of Congress are like credible. I'm going to blow this whole thing up over kind of things, right? Um, It's like, you know, there's going to be broadband in it, right? Like, Mm -hmm. there are not that many rural Democrats left, but they are absolutely pivotal. They are 100% willing to walk away from things because it's good politics for them. And they at least believe that like, rural broadband spending is good politics for them. Whereas like, The long term care stuff, you know, it's as you were saying, Dylan, right? This is what Ted Kennedy, like his dying wish was to get this into the Affordable Care Act. And it didn't work Mm
2: -hmm. like it's
1: it's it's a lot of money. And there wasn't like the politics to be like, yeah, we need to just keep shoveling
2: money at this problem. Right. And that is, again, why, you know, the most to go back to your point, Dara, like the most likely outcome is, yeah, if we do, if we get any money, we're just going to shovel it into stuff that already exists. Like nobody nobody's trying to set up new to long term care programs like that's just that's a uh, that's a Waterloo for any any policymaker or lawmaker.
1: Stay waivers. All right, let's take a break and let's talk about a white paper. We have today, Can Automatic Retention Improve Health Insurance Market Outcomes? Uh, This is like a super nerdy paper, I think. Mm -hmm. Uh, But one of the authors, Adriana McIntyre, along with Mark Shepard and Miles Wagner, was I I believe Vox's first intern uh, way back in the day. So we feel sentimental about Adrian, which was graduated from interning to the lofty world of uh, research paper writing. Um, so they were looking at the the way the ACA uh, worked in Massachusetts and something that they tried, which was that if you don't pay your premium, instead of kicking you off your coverage, they would automatically enroll you in a free plan uh, if, a free, if you were eligible for a free plan. Um, and this made a big difference. It was like 14% of people like wound up getting insurance this way. It's like such a small thing. There's like no reason, I think, for states not really to do this. Um, I guess you can save a little money because these are heavily subsidized people. Um, Mm. But it's federal money, right?
2: Yeah, well, it would be now. I I believe the period they studied was like the proto ACA in the right. in Massachusetts before the ACA was was actually implemented. Um, but yeah, in theory, it would just be a matter of of more federal subsidies to cover the costs of people switching into these these no cost plans.
1: But it's a, it's a, the power of defaults, which is like something I've been learning about a little bit in the welfare state. Mm. Um, and there's just like a lot of areas in which we do not err on the side of enrolling people in things that they're eligible for. And you get much less uptake than you might.
2: Yeah. I mean, yeah, this this totally enforced my prior that the defaults are good Um, and we should be automatic enrollment, automatic stabilizers, automatic retention, do it all as far as I am concerned. Um I did think this was this was an interesting lesson coming on the heels of well, well there was one the, the thing that stuck out to me maybe the most about the the story was or about the paper was they tried to break down kind of like how much is the people lapsing in their premium payments a result of the actual affordability of the health insurance or the premium, as opposed to, you know, how much of it is literally just people kind of like forgetting to pay their premiums. Um, and, uh, and they, they kind of come down on the side of that a lot of this is driven by people, the hassle costs, not, not, it's not that people. Find this, find the health insurance to be unaffordable. They pulled a r- really, I thought, uh, provocative example of comparing, like looking at like a three dollar per month plan and how many people ended up defaulting on those premiums and getting switched into a no cost plan. And it was a, it was a huge number. It was like a quarter of those people moved from the three dollar plan to the zero dollar plan. And as they say, like that doesn't really suggest, you know, $3 a month, broadly speaking, is not going to be unaffordable. This seems to be much more a matter of like, people, and it seems especially like younger people, maybe healthier people to whom health insurance is a little less of a priority, kind of just, you know, I guess it just slips their minds or young people are irresponsible or whatever. And so, you know, I think that is a a a pretty strong argument that like, you know, it's, it's not that that we can keep these people, you know, enrolled in benefits. Um, I think at a relatively low cost. And and all I could keep thinking about, you know, this is not strictly automatic enrollment, as you know, like taking an uninsured person and enrolling them in a health care plan. But you know, there was just some new federal data that came out um, last week that showed that, like, I think it was seven million people um, already currently, right now qualify for free health insurance under the ACA. And to your point, Matt, like, it's just a matter of we're not able to reach those people or we haven't figured out a way to sign them up. And, you know, it, it does seem like this is should be like a really ripe area for policymaking. You know, there were all kinds of aspirations in the early days of the ACA about these new exchanges, these new marketplaces that they were setting up. And I remember covering the one in Rhode Island as they were doing some of their exchange planning. And they had all these ambitions about like, you know, maybe we can set up like a one-stop shop, like one portal where if somebody, you know, goes to enroll for food stamps or some other kind of public assistance, we're not just going to enroll them in that program, if they, although we certainly will if they qualify it, but we're going to like check for all the other public benefits that they might qualify for. And I think that, you know, states found that pretty hard to do. You know, practically speaking, it's hard to integrate all these different programs and uh, in IT systems, uh, to communicate with one each other. But it just seems like the lowest possible laying, hanging fruit that either we can, you know, move people who default on their payments into a no cost plan and keep them insured that we could enroll people who already qualify for benefits into those benefits. Like, you know, this is not a matter of, although certainly it would end up costing more money. This is not a matter of, you know, expanding the welfare state really in any meaningful way. It's just a matter of providing people with with benefits that they already qualify for. And I think that this this auto retention policy was, you know, a, a very, clearly a very simple and a very effective way of doing it. And so, you know, you would hope that, that policymakers might take the lesson that like, it's not that hard to keep people kind of tethered to the system and make sure they keep receiving the benefits that they are already entitled to.
0: I want to drill down a little bit on what you you know mentioned kind of in passing there, Dylan, which was the nature of the people who were auto-switched in this mm. uh, under this policy, uh, because the authors of the paper find that they were you know that they were exactly the sort of people who generally are less likely to want to seek out health insurance because they are less at risk, right? They're younger. They're less likely to have a chronic illness. They have lower medical risk scores. They are spending less money even before they switch. And they're certainly not spending a ton of money in these zero cost plans after they switch. And that kind of steers right into the fundamental normative question that was posed in the, you know, Years during and after the passage of the ACA about what this does to the autonomy of you know young healthy people who might, for principled reasons, not want to pay money on in health insurance. They you know they might they might reasonably assess that their risk is not enough that this is something they need to do, but it steers right past it right because they're not in fact paying money. They are enrolling in zero cost programs, and so if you if you kind of take the anti-mandate argument to its logical conclusion there's not a clear argument for the idea of pooling risk in insurance at all because if people if the lowest risk people are opting out then you have the kind of death spiral scenario that you know so many health economists have warned about you have the changed character of the zero-cost pool with this infusion of younger, healthier people into it who aren't spending a ton of money on health costs, but you also don't have the idea that these people are themselves directly subsidizing the older and sicker, which kind of cuts that Gordian knot in a way. I mean, it doesn't It doesn't get at the kind of fundamental questions of should government be paying for, but it certainly does take away the argument of isn't it hurting these people directly by forcing them to pay money into an insurance marketplace at a rate that is going to help them less than it helps older, sicker people.
2: Yeah, I mean, it does seem, I mean, obviously, it's beyond the scope of this paper to kind of do all the calculations and figure out like, all right, ultimately, by subsidizing these younger people at no cost plans, did we kind of make health insurance cheaper on the whole by, uh, by balancing out the risk pool? But it does seem like a potentially... Cheap way, an easy way, and kind of non-confrontational way, to your point, Dara, to to combat adverse selection, and also, you know, provide again, provide people, you know, because people get sick, people get hurt, and they don't know, you know, and they don't can't necessarily anticipate that. Providing people with at least some level of benefits. Obviously, you know, usually these these no cost plans uh, are are a little bit skimpier. They have higher deductibles, higher cost sharing, et cetera. But for a younger and healthier person, uh, that might not be that big. Of a deal because, as you say, they're not really using that much healthcare, and so if you can provide them those benefits, you know, provide more federal funding to to the health insurers to help you know strengthen their risk pool, it seems yeah like a pretty as you say a pretty kind of neat way to kind of solve that that dilemma. I would be curious. I don't really have any idea, and it's probably something I I'd need to to do some reporting on. But I, I would be really curious to know whether this was something that the ACA architects ever thought of adopting or whether, you know, as we're now finally, you know, kind of finally in a stage of looking for ways to enhance and improve the ACA, uh, whether this seems potentially like a, a pretty promising model uh, for how you might uh, avoid a lot of churn in the health insurance market uh, that, you know, keep it's, it's pretty stable these days, but, um, you know, it can only help uh, to keep more younger and healthier people in the pool.
0: Also, Adriana, if you're listening, if you guys want to do a follow up paper on how this changed the nature of the risk pool, you clearly have a ready made audience for
1: that. <laughs> we'll be back. Um, <laughs> I, I wanted to I, I wanted to talk a little bit more about the um, the idea of uh, cross enrollment that that Dylan sort of mentioned before because um, I, I was recently learned about the sort of Uh, uptake rates of a lot of means tested social assistance are really low. Um, Mm. About 84% of SNAP eligible people are on SNAP, uh, but only about 51% of um, WIC, uh, you know, uh, eligible people are on the program. Um, Earned income tax credit has about a 78% participation rate. So like if, Democrats, at least, are looking for ways to sort of further expand and bolster the welfare state that don't require, like, a $9 trillion reconciliation bill, right? Like, a to try to fight to get a little provision into a bipartisan annual, you know, appropriations bill or something, creating, like, a small office in the federal government that like when somebody registers for snap they go they take their application information and check if they are also eligible for WIC. like would be a high leverage in terms of getting more money into people's pockets um but you would have to like go go do the work um there's a lot i mean this is beyond the scope of this episode but i mean there's a lot of questions about how much um the new child tax credit, like how many people will end up actually getting that money if it'll be as high as EITC's 78%. Uh, but it probably won't be like dramatically higher than that because, you know, it's the same thing. It's tax credit and you got to sort of wrangle it, um, with, with, with your tax preparers. And it's, um, I don't know. It's just like a bit of an underrated issue. And you can see mm-hmm. that the ACA, there was like kind of some talk about this and then nothing ever really got done and we continue to see a program where the defaults matter like an incredible amount um but they're just like mostly not that forceful with like what happens to you i signed up for uh obamacare and um it's not like bad sign up website or anything like that but Mm. it's like i'm like a professional policy journalist so like i knew Once I no longer had employer based insurance, like I got to go to the thing and fill myself out and get in the open enrollment deadline. And even though it's in some I guess it's not mandatory anymore, but like the D.C. government, like I think like they're run by liberal people, like they want you to be on it. But they're not like, here you go, newly self-employed person, Mm -hmm. like check this box and we'll get you your health insurance. It's very much like. Well, if you really want it, like you can come yeah. here, and and that's not that's not the intention of any of these programs. I think like the authors of the you know WIC legislation like want low income pregnant women to get the benefits, uh, but like half of them don't.
2: Yeah, no, it seems to me a pretty dramatic failing of the American welfare state. I mean, I think about. All this through health insurance, obviously. And there was a new, some new uh, Kaiser Family Foundation estimates uh, that came out in the last couple of weeks that showed that more than half of uninsured people in the US qualify for some kind of public assistance, whether that is Medicaid or subsidies through the ACA to buy private insurance. And the many of the rest of the people, this is Dara's wheelhouse. um, You know, some of them don't qualify for anything because of their citizenship status. There's some people who are left in the Medicaid expansion gap. Um, But like, you know, that's, that's, potentially like 10 million people or more, 12, you know, more like 15 million people who already qualify for something. And obviously like there's a reason they haven't been involved, you know, they may be more transient or they just don't have a lot of connections clearly to to our public welfare infrastructure. But as you're saying, Matt, like it seems like that would be such a an efficient way to get people more benefits if we could if we could figure out some kind of system that's kind of like cross-checking for people to, yeah, not just, you know, don't just sign somebody up for WIC. Figure out everything that they qualify for because, you know, especially with these kind of folks, you, you know, that one contact, you know, when they sign up for SNAP or WIC or whatever, that might be kind of your – that's your opening to try to get them these other benefits too because clearly, you know, the, one of our struggles here is, is just reaching them um, and, and kind of informing them and giving them an opportunity to enroll in these benefits.
1: And for the flip side, for the people who do enroll in multiple benefits, there's no reason for the government to be repeatedly verifying your eligibility, right? right? It's like only one thing. It's like this person shows up, they assert that they have the following income and work history. And so like you check if that's true once Instead of currently, if you're doing it correctly, right? Like if you're on EITC and food stamps and all these other things, it's like the government is constantly re verifying that these facts about you are true. And there's no, the, the same person hours could be reallocated to getting everybody all the help that they need instead of repeating the work that other aspects of the bureaucracy have already done. Yeah. Yeah.
0: That seems to me crucial if you're trying to solve this problem because, like, people it it is true that people have idiosyncratic notions of a like what counts as government assistance and you know uh, idiosyncratic senses of what is stigmatized and what is morally unworthy and also different senses of what their level of you know privacy risk or exposure risk is when it comes to different arms of government and so if you're requiring somebody to initiate interactions with a bunch of different government entities, you are by definition proliferating the number of occasions where they can go, actually, this seems too risky, like, oh, I don't want to give them my information. You're also kind of just encouraging this misunderstanding of how government works and the, and, and encouraging the idea that there is something totally different about qualifying for WIC versus SNAP. So if you want to unify it on the back end, you eliminate the kind of friction problem of these idiosyncratic senses of what counts as welfare and doesn't
1: all right that's a wrap um thanks so much dylan uh, thanks as always to our sponsors to our producer eric Chanakis, and the weeds will be back on friday